0: Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-A Law. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and we're continuing to build out our campaign for the Fallout Role-Playing Game. As I always say, if you're still needing a copy of the book, head over to your local game shop or bookstore, or if that's not an option, you can hit up the Modiphius Entertainment website, M O D I P H I U S dot net. We've picked up a bunch of new listeners over the past few weeks, and they've hit me up on the socials to ask why I plug Modifius Entertainment twice during each show. I've been asked if they sponsor me or something. The answer is no, they don't, though it would be really cool if they did. I plug them twice a show because I'm using their product on my show, and to me, it's just basic courtesy to plug the company that produces the materials when you're using them with the hope being that if we drive enough business to their website or to the game shop, we might get a chance to work with them down the line, which again would be really cool. And for the record, I did this last season with Pinnacle Entertainment Group when we did our Deadlands campaign, and I'll do it next season for whatever game system we use next. Okay, so this week's show is also a game recap show for my game, so let's get to the build since I managed to come up with the job I couldn't come up with for last week's show. But first, a recap. Last week, the group set up around the perimeter of the Lemp Brewery to see if they could find the individuals that had been reportedly spying on the brewery. They did, and they either tailed them back to where they came from, or they got in a gunfight with them and didn't. If they didn't follow them, it was probably a very short session for your group. For those who tailed them, they got to an old newspaper publishing site, They had several encounters when they first got in, but ultimately discovered a whole host of synths inside, which caused them to flee, or at least the smart move would have been to flee. Victor took in the information provided and suggested the group back off of that particular lead for the moment while he did some digging. Instead, he had another lead for them to follow, and that's where we pick up this week. Victor instructs the group to meet with Chip, whom he tells them has been an exceptionally reliable source of information in the past. Chip's got a bit of what one would call a quirky personality, though, as he won't meet in a public place, and he expects to be paid not in caps, but in addictal and grape mentats. Victor will provide the group with several doses of each and gives them the meeting location, which, by the way, is a bus station across the street from the old Kiel Auditorium. He notes it's going to take them about 25 minutes or so to get there, so they've got time as the meeting is set for 4 a.m. For our purposes, we'll say it's somewhere between 2.45 and 3.15 a.m. as the meeting ends. That gives the group a couple of minutes to grab a bite to eat or to use some stim packs or, hey, other chems if that's their deal. No judgment here. If the group asks for a description of Chip, Victor doesn't have one to give. He admits he's never actually met Chip. What they're going to need to do is get to the bus station and wait. When someone approaches them and asks, how's your mother? They should answer, I haven't talked to my mother in a year. And he makes it clear that they need to give the answer as he gave it to them. Chip will then either take them to somewhere more private to talk if there are people there, or he'll give them the information. If he's got actionable intel, the group is encouraged to follow up on it, since whatever they get probably has a short shelf life. If it's not immediately actionable, he requests that they return to him so they can game plan out a course of action. Now, we've detailed the scenery on the way to Kiel multiple times before, so I won't get into it again here. Just note that the auditorium is on the south side of the building, as the Opera House, which is where Barnabas O'Reilly had his office, is on the north side. The bus station is across the street from the auditorium. Now, the bus station is really more like a bus shed, as it's not more really than three walls, a roof, and a ticket counter. And it's apparent that the buses used to line up across the front of the shed and take off as their departure times came up. There's still a couple of buses parked there, and if the group wishes to check them out, they find four suitcases containing some clothing and other assorted personal care items, maybe a mirror or a toothbrush. No caps or chems, though. Regardless of whether or not they search the buses, at some point they'll be standing around the shed waiting for their contact, and they get surprised by the voice coming from behind the counter. From the darkness they hear, How's your mother? When they give the counter sign, the source of the question exits the shadows. Standing four and a half feet tall and weighing about a hundred pounds, the ghoul standing before them is dressed in a long overcoat and wearing a worn fedora. The coat is button closed, and from their side of the counter, they don't see whether it's wearing pants and shoes or not. It really doesn't matter, though. The figure gets up to the counter, eyeballs the group, and speaks. We're not doing introductions here. I, I don't need to know your names, and if you know mine, I'd appreciate it if you not only just not say it, but forget about it as soon as you can. Now, we are going to go ahead and use Chip's name, since this is going to get confusing if we don't. Chip informs the group he's got information, but he expects his payment first. When the group hands over the chems, Chip smiles, then agrees to tell him what he knows. Now, he doesn't have a lot of information, but he gives him what he's got, The group that hit Victor's storehouse had some ghouls in it. He'd call them feral ghouls, but unless someone rolled a cage up to the doors and released them, he has no idea how they could be controlled long enough to not attack the people using them. But maybe they're not feral, as he was approached a couple of days ago by someone offering him a lot of money to accompany a group of people for a job, but to make it look like a feral ghoul had done a lot of damage. Chip notes that something about the way the offer was presented sounded off, so he politely declined, and he's been hiding ever since. He never saw a face, as the discussion was held in the old confessional of a Catholic Church. He believes, based on what he saw when he walked in, that whomever he spoke to uses the church as some sort of base of operations. He can tell them that the pews have all been removed, replaced by a number of desks, computers, and a ton of filing cabinets. He also noted that there were a number of heavily armed men in garson tactical gear and he was searched as he entered. And the only name he has is Mr. Smiley and come on, he knows that's not a real name. The church is St. Nicholas Catholic Church, which is about a 17-minute walk north from the bus station. Having given his information and collected his pay, he slinks back into the darkness from which he came leaving the group to once again be alone. Now, it's up to the group to decide whether or not the information they just got is actionable, but I'm going to be real honest here. My group's going to take action, so let's build it out. If they decide to head back to Victor to tell him what they've got, he's going to ask him to head that way anyway, so let's just get to it. As I mentioned, it's a 17-minute walk almost due north to the church, And since we haven't really covered anything north of the Opera House, this is going to be some new territory for the group. So like I like to do, here's a little bit of a St. Louis history lesson. St. Nicholas Catholic Church actually exists, and it exists at the location we're sending the group to. In our world, the lot across the street is a parking lot for the City Museum, which if you're ever in the area, you must check out. However, in this world, that lot, along with the buildings along the route, have been damaged pretty badly thanks to the bombing. And based on some of the scorch marks they can see, there's been a lot of explosions and gunfire recently as well. Now, we're not going to have an encounter here, mostly because we've got a doozy of one cooked up in a bit. But that doesn't mean you can't play up what the group hears as they walk along. You can hit them with the sounds of frantic scurrying from the rubble, which could get them thinking rad roaches, mole rats, or even feral ghouls. Play it up however you want. Heck, if you want to go with the sounds of gunfire fairly close by, do that as well. But if your group is a group of do-gooders who might chase that down to see what they can do, maybe that's not a good idea. My group tends to ignore those and stay on target, so if I go that way, that's what I'm going to use. The church itself isn't nearly as large as some of the churches we've used in the campaign to this point, but it's still pretty decent size. It takes up around 5,000 square feet of space, convert that to metric if you need to, and while it has scorch marks all over it from the bombings, it's still intact. Something the group will notice that should give them a case of what I call the what is the fact that there is no visible security on the outside of the building. They can roll whatever they want to roll to attempt to find any. There just ain't any here. Like I said, that should confuse them, since if Chip's right about this place, it's somebody's base of operations, and one would think something that important would be guarded 24-7. So, I'll bet good money the group spends quite a bit of time searching the perimeter to make sure they're not being watched. Again, this is an opportunity to create suspense, though, again, there isn't anyone here. So let's lay out what the church looks like on the outside. First off, I need to note that in our time, the church looks more like an American middle or high school building than a church, and I think that's because it used to actually be one. You can look at pictures online if you're curious. However, with this being a 50s retro future style game, we'll give it that 1950s flair. So instead of looking like a schoolhouse, it does resemble a church with the stained glass windows and a lot of them, plus a steeple with a cross on it. There's only one set of doors heading into the church, and it's a solid wood double door set. The group does have to walk up some stairs to get there from street level, but nothing really too bad. Checking the inside from the outside, the group can tell there are some lights on inside the church, but the nature of stained glass makes it difficult to make out much else. The doors are locked, but a perception plus lockpick difficulty 4 can get it done. However, the group should also probably think about checking the door for some sort of trigger device as the door is wired to blow. We'll use perception plus explosives difficulty 3, and we're using that combo since knowledge of explosives would, in my opinion, give someone the edge when checking to see if they're actually being applied to a particular situation. I mean, I'm sure I'm probably off in my assumption, but for our purposes, it'll work. Let's handle the checks in reverse order. The door has a couple of trigger hinges, and they appear to be wired to something on the inside. The successful check allows them to snip the wires so they can open the door without incident. And obviously, a successful lockpick check allows them to unlock the doors to get them open. Once they get them open, they see what the triggers were wired to. A set of four fragmentation mines that are bolted to the doors. Cutting the wires has deactivated them, so if the group wants to take them at some point to deal with them, let them. That moment won't be now, though, because moments after they get the doors open, they realize they've been lured into a trap. Or to quote Admiral Akbar, It's a trap! Ten feral ghouls and two glowing ones zero in on the group and move to attack. For the record, stats for the ghouls are on page 355, while the glowing one is on 356. Just as the combat is beginning, it should occur to the group that the mines probably were intended not only to blow up anybody trying to get into the building, but also any of the ghouls who might try to get out of the building. Just saying, they really don't want to let all these nasties out into the populace and it, look, probably that's not going to happen. By this point, the group is high enough level with enough firepower to take the feral ghouls out pretty quick, and the glowing ones, while tougher, can be handled by this group. I mean, think about it for a moment. In the video game, one person with a companion can take out a handful of feral ghouls and a glowing one, so a group of four or five should be able to handle this. Granted, there's going to be some injuries, but they should be able to get it done. And each ghoul slash glowing one will have two dice worth of junk items on it. So check out page 208 for how to do that. I'll leave the category of the junk up to you since you know what your group needs. Now, with the battle complete, the group is no doubt highly annoyed by the fact that they were led into a trap. But they're going to search the church to see if anything Chip told them was true. And that's where they'll notice it a short-ish individual wearing a worn fedora and trench coat nailed to the cross above the pulpit. It's got a ghoulish-looking face. In fact, it looks just like Chip. They can lower the cross to check it out, and there's no doubt that it either is Chip or someone who looks just like him. One major thing, though, is if they remove the hat, they notice the brain has been removed. Let's go with Science Plus Medicine Difficulty 4, There are two possibilities here. Either somebody did the brain-in-a-jar robot thing from the video game, or they used a rather dated process to draw the memories and personalities out of someone to transfer it into a synth. Since the brain-in-a-jar robot thing is exclusive to the video game, that's not something the characters would know about. I mean, not yet. Let's just say I've got plans down the line. So, obviously it's the second. Somebody decided to take Chip's memories and personality and transfer it into a synth, which means they met and made a deal with a synth, which means they were set up, which also means somebody knows about them, or at the very least knows about Victor. Let's table that thought for a while and get to the rest of the search. The church is abandoned. No desk. No confessional. Just piles of junk and rubble. However, have everyone searching make a perception plus luck check difficulty 3. If they succeed, they'll notice something among the debris, and it's right under where the cross was hanging. It's a holotape. They'll probably pick it up immediately, and if somebody has a Pip-Boy, they can play it immediately. If not, they'll have to get back to Victor's to get it played. We'll get into what the holotape has on it momentarily, just in case the group has to wait. In the meanwhile, the group probably wants to get out of here and back to either their base or to Victor, so let's get them back. It'll take about a half an hour to get there, and we're talking about Diamond Pass, since I'm pretty sure they're just going to want to go report to Victor. When they report what they know, Victor's going to be stunned. He'll also have a look of regret on his face, since, as he notes, Chip has been a loyal informant for me for a very long time. I asked him to dig into this since situation, and it looks like it got him killed. That is on me. However, he's curious to know what's on the holotape, so he requests the group play it for him. When they hit play, they hear Chip's voice. Okay, Victor, this whole situation's deeper than we thought it was. iRobotics has been cranking out synths in increased numbers for the past couple of months, and I can't seem to find out why. I mean, there has to be somebody buying all of them, but none of my usual sources have any information. Either that or they're being really well paid to keep their mouths shut. Look, I can tell you, these synths are top of the line. If you didn't know they were scents, you'd never find out unless you decided to cut them open. I mean, I had to shoot a guy the other day for trying to rip me off, and if I hadn't blown his head off, I'd have never known. My guy at Garson Tactical told me that they had a big-time theft at their Clayton facility a month or so ago, and it basically got cleaned out. Weapons, armor, uniforms, whole nine yards. So that should tell you how the scents that attacked you got their gear. Just not sure who's behind them. I'm on my way to meeting with somebody calling himself Mr. Smiley. Yeah, I know that's an alias, but he supposedly got a line on whoever the Mr. Big is on this deal. Maybe it's the chems, but I got a really bad feeling about this meeting. That's why I'm recording this. I wanted you to know everything I know, just in case. Oh, one more thing. Our female friend has a line on somebody you might want to look into. Of course, since I don't know who might get their hands on this tape, I'm not saying more than that. You'll know what I mean, though. There's a pause, then he speaks again. All right, I've told you everything I can think of. I got 20 minutes to get to the meeting, so I got to go. Hope to see you or that team of yours in person to deliver the news, but just in case, well, it's been good working with you, and I hope you find the answers you're looking for. The tape ends. Victor seems lost in thought for several minutes afterwards. He smiles, then speaks. So Sylvia knows of someone we need to speak with about this synth situation. It would appear we are headed to the Twisted Tap tonight. He's not overly concerned about the Garson theft. He'll note that he will have someone he knows he can trust look into it, but he's not going to waste the group on that, at least not yet. He encourages the group to get a good night's rest, something to eat, and to resupply. They'll head to the tap around 8 p.m., and he expects the group to be here at 6.30 to get dressed and equipped. We'll assume by this point it's close to 5 a.m., maybe 6, depending on how long things took. That means the group's got about 12 hours to rest, recuperate, resupply, and make sure they get back to victors to get ready to head out. Now, normally I'd stop the build here, but since I shorted last week's build, let's continue on. However, before we do that, let's level up. You know the drill by now, one health, one skill point, and one perk. You'll also want to let your group shop if they're interested. All in all, this will probably take an hour of your time, but once we're done with that, let's fast forward to 6.30 p.m. Victor has Bruno bring fresh suits for the characters that will be going into the club with him and surveillance gear for those who won't. Probably safe to assume the group will use the same lineup and setup they did last time, so no need to cover that here. What we will cover, though, is Victor's instructions to the group. We will need to remain in the club for an hour or so to keep up appearances. My goal is to speak with Sylvia immediately upon entry, so I will hopefully have our name moments after we enter. Unless that person just happens to be inside, once we have the name, we will sit at my table, have a couple of drinks, and listen. Perhaps we will overhear someone sharing more than they should. If that is the case, we can use that to our advantage. He then addresses the group that will be outside. I know I do not have to tell you this, but I wanted to do so so that we are clear. I need you to keep eyes on the entirety of the perimeter. Anything that seems out of place needs to be noted. Do not try to run it down on your own. Note what it is and where it is, and we will deal with it when we leave. I do not want to let anyone onto the fact that I am aware. So with the instructions laid out and everyone ready to go, they'll head out. Now, the last time we did this, we got them there without an incident. Not this time. This time, they'll get about six blocks from the club when they're ambushed. Five super mutant brutes will ambush them from all sides. Stats are on page 368. Once all but one of them are down, the group will hear a beep, 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 beep sound that keeps going and sounds like it's getting closer to them. It's coming from the north, which means it's to their right as they head towards the club. They can pretty quickly figure out it's a super mutant sewer and that beep is the mini nuke it's carrying set to go off when it gets to the group. So this is going to require a bit of laying out. We'll assume the final brute and the group are in fairly close combat. That would leave the suicider well outside of even extreme range, which gives the group three rounds to drop it before it gets close enough to detonate the bomb and pretty much liquefy everyone. And if the beep wasn't enough of a clue as to what's going on, the fact that the brute will disengage and run like the wind, (laughs) that should be everything they need to know. So it should be an easy takedown. Now, should is the operative word. Each round it stays up, the Suicider gets one range increment closer. So by the end of round three, it's a medium range, which is close enough to detonate the bomb. Now the group can use whatever weapons they want, including missiles, and still be able to salvage the mini-nuke. Run it and see where it goes. Also, Victor is armed like he was last time, so if you don't still have that character sheet, head over to the website and print it off. Once they're done, they are a little worse for the wear, but since they don't have time to head back to the pass and change, Victor's just going to lead them onwards. They reach the twisted tap, and the group that's going to remain outside can start getting into position, while Victor and the inside group head inside. They barely get inside the club when Sylvia approaches them. She greets him warmly and leans in to give him a kiss on the cheek. She didn't do that the last time they were here, so it's going to be a bit weird. Not to mention she lingers there for a moment. But Victor smiles, nods, and motions the group to the table. Once they're seated and their drink orders are taken, he gives them the goods. Marshall Malone, that is the name. He is apparently someone quite experienced with the programming and assembly of synths, and apparently has a, how best to say this, axe to grind with iRobotics. Sylvia does not know how to find him, but I am sure we can, With a bit of time and digging. At that point, they'll be sipping their drinks and listening in on the conversations around them. They're boring, so we're not going to get into them here. After an hour, Victor nods to the group, signaling them to get up so they can leave. He stops when they get to Sylvia, makes it a point to kiss her on the cheek, and then they leave. Let's get to the group outside. There's really not much of anything going on out here. Again, you can ratchet up the suspense if you'd like, but My thought here is that whomever ordered the hit on them the last time they were here, shot is shot. So the next hit's probably not going to be quite so obvious in time or in place. They see when Victor is exiting and can rather quickly gather with the rest of the team to head back to the pass. Along the way, Victor brings the group up to speed on what he learned and mentioned that he'll task Bruno with information gathering once they get back to the third base saloon. And I do think we've got a good stopping point here. Before we move on, though, I need to address something I didn't put in here earlier. I know I did another church site. And like I said the last time, if you're not comfortable using churches in your game, change it to whatever you are comfortable with. Or if you prefer it to be a mosque or a temple or a synagogue, do that. You know what you need better than I do. So you'll know how best to adjust Chip's method of hanging inside that building. Okay, so since my group ran last week, we've got stuff to cover. First, though, let's recap what we did two weeks ago. We picked up with our group reaching the area where Briar the Ghoul lives so they could deliver the bottle of booze they'd been tasked with delivering. The interaction went so well that Tyler managed to get him to swap out his buzzsaw for a flamer at cost. With that task accomplished, they move on to the next job on their list, and that's the extermination job at the church. They met with Walter, who explained the situation to them and set them to work. They initially used Jim to float up to the windows of the church to get a feel for how many ghouls they were dealing with. While he saw three green figures, he wasn't able to determine exactly how many there were. So Gabe went in to check. As a ghoul himself, he knew they wouldn't attack him. So he was able to determine there were a dozen feral ghouls in there, and he left and shut the door behind him. The group decided that Gabe would lead four out at a time, closing the door behind him and holding it shut as he did so. Tyler and Jim would be just outside the door, since they and Gabe can't be harmed by radiation, from the glowing ghouls, or glowing ones as they're called, while the rest of the group would post up just outside the makeshift barriers and help take out the ghouls. Now that plan almost worked. And I say almost, because Gabe had issues in keeping the door closed, so at one point there were nine feral ghouls that had made their way out. The group managed to take them all out with zero casualties, but seemed stumped that the glowing ones hadn't come out. Jim floated back up to the windows and figured out why. The doors to the offices they were in were closed, so he took aim with his laser and took them all out. From there, the group as a whole entered the church, did a bit of scavenging, then headed downstairs to deal with whatever might be down there. What was down there were 32 mole rats. I wrote this to be four for each groom member, if you'll remember, and that was way too many. In the end, they succeeded, cooked up the mole rat meat, and got their payment from Walter. That's where we wrapped the last game, and that's where we picked up last Saturday night. Having just cleaned out the church, the group decided to perform the final job of the four that they picked up that they actually intended to do, and that's the supply job that Lee Ferry. They headed south and had the Mirelurk encounter we drew up just south of there. It wasn't too much of a challenge for them, though it did take about four rounds to get done. From there, they continued along their way and had the Stingwing encounter we built. Again, this wasn't too bad of a challenge, and they completed it in a couple of rounds. Now, one thing that does need to be noted is that while these weren't too tough of a challenge, there were some injuries incurred, and the group was able to handle getting everyone healed. I should also point out, and probably should have noted this up top, that we were minus Max and Tyler this session, but things still went well even being shorthanded. The group made their way down to the ferry, had their introduction to Martin, and discussed his supply needs. The group agreed to his prices for the meat, but when it came to purchasing Radex and Rataway, the group wanted to deal. Clayton hit his rolls out of the park, so they were able to get him for 35 and 50 caps, respectively. The group made sure everyone who needed them got Radex and Rataway, and we wrapped at this point due to various commitments for the group members on Sunday. And while it doesn't necessarily sound like we got a lot done, in the grand scheme of things, we actually got a lot done. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Next week, we'll see if the group can find out who this Marshall Malone character is and what he brings to the table. In the meanwhile, check out our other show, Role Playing History. This week, we deep dive the games Ringworld and Bunnies and Burrows. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modiphius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out all the fine products produced by Modiphius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we answer the question, who is Marshall Malone? That's next week, though. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.